Uh, so I'm here today to talk about Doomsday, which seems rather appropriate in the context of 2016, really. Um, but, but Doomsday and Big Data. Um, and my paper's sort of in two parts, because the first part is thinking about, uh, about Doomsday as an example of medieval big data, and the second part is thinking about um, how modern internet technologies have enabled scholars to work with the Doomsday Book in a way that just wasn't possible 20 years ago, say. Um, so, so very narrowly did he have it investigated that there was no hide nor vergate of land, nor indeed, it is a shame to relate, but it seemed no shame to him to do, one ox, nor one cow, nor one pig, which was there left out and not put down in his record. We tend to think of governments harnessing the power of big data to monitor and police their populations as an intrinsically modern phenomenon. Yet, as the Anglo-Saxon chronicler's deeply suspicious attitude towards the Doomsday Survey of 1086 demonstrates, popular uneasiness at the notion of increasing state surveillance through enhanced methods of data collection far predates our own current digital revolution. Back when she was still Home Secretary, and how long ago does that seem, Theresa May came under some considerable fire in the press for rushing the Investigatory Powers Bill through Parliament. Um, apparently so as to vo avoid subjecting it to serious scrutiny. Calls for serious amendments to be made to the draft bill, dubbed the Snoopers Charter by its opponents, came not only from privacy campaigners, but also from tech giants such as Apple, Facebook, Microsoft and Google. Profound questions were raised about the bill's legality, morality and efficacy. The debate crystallize around the apparent dichotomy between individual privacy and public security. But questions were also raised about why the government sought access to the browsing history and personal communications of millions of its citizens in the first place. Is a desire to harvest more and more information a natural response of a regime which perceives itself to be under threat in some way? And if so, how did the Home Office actually anticipate that this big data security blanket would be used? In spite of profound and obvious contextual differences, the millennium-old Doomsday Book offers a surprisingly instructive point of comparison with the current debate on govern government data collection and surveillance. Commissioned by King William I, the Conqueror, at Christmas 1085, in a climate of political uncertainty against the looming threat of Danish invasion, the Doomsday Survey was an administrative endeavour unparalleled in contemporary Western Europe in terms of its scope and ambition. In just eight short months during 1086, the Conqueror's commissioners carried out a more detailed survey of the landed and fiscal resources of England than had ever before been undertaken. It's worth pausing for a moment to say that the name is not actually contemporary. It's a 12th century coinage, um, but it was, we're told by Henry II's treasurer that the name comes from the fact that the people thought that the judgments of this book would last until doomsday. So it was seen a century after its production as having a kind of permanence, which perhaps we all sort of assume that nothing really has now. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's, the name is kind of an interesting reflection of how people perceived it at the time. Um, we don't have very many narrative accounts about how the book was actually made um, or how the survey was carried out, but one which does survive and which is quite illuminating is by Robert Losinger, who was the Bishop of Hereford at the time. Um, and he said that 
in the 20th year of his reign, by order of William, King of the English, there was made a survey of the whole of England, that is to say, of the lands and several provinces of England, and of the possessions of each and of all the magnates. This was done in respect of ploughland and habitations, and of men both bond and free, both those who dwelt in the cottages and those who had their homes and their share in the fields, and in respect of ploughs and horses and other animals, and in respect of the services and payments due from all men in the whole land. Other investigators followed the first, and men were sent into provinces which they did not know, and where they were themselves unknown, in order that they might be given the opportunity of checking the first survey, and if necessary, of denouncing its authors as guilty to the king. And the land was vexed with much violence arising from the collection of royal taxes. So we have here a sense from the Bishop of Hereford that what the king is attempting to do here, at least, is to kind of add an element of impartiality to this process, to make it within reason as far as was possible when this is all just people asking each other questions, but to make it more automated almost, so that people aren't going into places where they already own stuff and getting involved in disputes there. Um, and you can see the map on the screen, which shows um, seven what doomsday scholars call circuits, um, and the circuit boundaries are the darker brown lines. Um, but each one of these is a group of counties covered by a single team of people called commissioners. Um, and we can tell that there were seven of them, not because we're told that there were seven anywhere, but because doomsday book, the final text, has differences in terms of the language that's used, like small formulaic differences. So you can tell which counties were in which circuit. So that was the kind of the mechanism. And the results of this survey survive mainly in the volume known as Great Doomsday Book, uh, which is now in the National Archives at Kew. Um, but there is also information on Norfolk, Suffolk, and Essex, which is found in another smaller volume called Little Doomsday. Um, and there is, um, each part of the text also seems to have been through several written stages before making it into Great Doomsday. So first, there seems to have been geographically arranged local booklets, and then each circuit, those groups of counties, seem to have produced what we now think of as a kind of draft version of the final text. Um, though it's unclear whether the people producing these drafts actually knew that what they were making wasn't the final thing. Um, whether or not Great Doomsday Book was always seen as being the final product is very, very difficult to ascertain. So it may be that the, the seven sets of commissioners and the people working on these drafts in the localities thought that they were producing Doomsday. Um, there's only one of these drafts that now survives, and that's preserved in a manuscript known as Exxon Doomsday, uh, which is what the project that I'm attached to as a project student is focusing on. And you can see here an example page from uh, the Exxon Doomsday manuscript on the left, and then one from Great Doomsday Book on the right. Um, and so you'll be able to see the, the difference in the layout between the, the sort of draft and the final version. Um, so you've got the, the double columns on the right-hand side and far fewer um, corrections and annotations than there are on the left in the draft. Um, so we can see here a process whereby huge quantities of information were collected at a local level and then it had to be rearranged multiple times to get it into a format that was usable for whatever purpose was originally intended for it. Um, and the change of layout, I suppose, is a kind of pre-digital equivalent of just clicking different columns on your spreadsheet to make them move around. Um, but there's, there's a lot of man hours that would have gone into making this. Um, it's a huge, huge undertaking. Um, Great Doomsday is 
a remarkable achievement and a document of singular utility to historians of post-conquest England. Opinion remains divided, however, on the important question of why the survey was carried out in the first place. What exactly was William hoping to achieve through such close scrutiny of his subjects? Multiple competing explanations have been advanced, but most of these fall into two broad categories, and my not particularly relevant images kind of highlight that. Um, on the one hand, you have historians who have followed um, J.H. Round, who was writing at the end of the 19th century, um, and have seen Doomsday as a tax book uh, designed to assess the kingdom's tax liability and to increase royal revenues. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the disciples of V.H. Galbraith, who was writing between the 1930s and the 1960s, um, who stressed the feudal character of the book and characterized it as a sort of codification of the new Norman settlement. Um, and the final text of Great Doomsday actually supports both those interpretations, which is why it's still a debate. Because on the one hand, you have geographical elements of organization, and on the other, you have feudal elements of organization. Um, so it's quite hard to tell from the final product what the actual purpose was. Um, one of the great problems for historians is that um, Doomsday Book and all of the satellite texts that relate to it are organised in different ways. So you can pick out an individual manuscript related to the final product and it will give you a completely different sense of, of what was going on with this process. And it may be that the people carrying it out didn't quite know what they were doing in different areas or that they had different ideas in different regions about what the purpose was. And in this respect, I think that Doomsday, despite being a thousand years old, offers an important lesson to modern policymakers, perhaps, in that large bodies of data provide an important foundation for inquiry, clearly, but they can be impenetrable and confusing, as well as illuminating. Moreover, in analysing a mass of personal information, a government with an agenda to push will be all too likely to see its own priorities reflected back at it. And this doesn't just apply to governments, it clearly applies to historians as well, that we often see what we want to see in the data that we use. Of course, governments and their political priorities invariably change. Um, in September 1087, only a year after the execution of his great survey, William the Conqueror died on campaign in Normandy. He was succeeded in England by his second son, William II, and shortly afterwards, work on Doomsday seems to have ceased. Uh, great Doomsday apparently never finished being copied. The counties in East Anglia never incorporated into the final manuscript. Although there is evidence of later annotations in some of the draft manuscripts, and particularly in the Exxon manuscript that I work on, um, Great Doomsday Book itself seems to have become obsolete as a practical administrative document almost as quickly as it was made. Commissioned in response to a specific crisis situation, it offers a dazzlingly detailed snapshot of the English tenurial landscape at a specific moment in time. It was nevertheless of limited use in future crises. If the government now is to avoid similar swift obsolescence for the data that the Investigatory Powers Bill was designed to help it access, it might do well to focus less on the collection of bulk data and more on the kind of targeted surveillance that Google seems to be so good at doing. Otherwise, it, <laughs> it may risk a situation where you have doomsday-style data sets uh, which are of more use to future historians, perhaps, than to present security personnel. So, to move away from 
implicit criticism of the government, and on to what it is that we can actually do with doomsday now that we couldn't do before, and why people are still studying it after more than 900 years. Um, so the project I'm attached to is, has been made possible by the fact that the Exxon Doomsday Manuscript has recently been digitized. Um, and this is the homepage of the website, which should be going live in January, I think. Pretty sure it's January. Um, and so the whole manuscript is now going to be available for free online. Um, and this is, a, in itself, although it's a rather simple thing, it is a significant break with previous tradition. tradition. Um, Admittedly, this manuscript only covers part of the country, but up until this point, if you want to find the, uh, the bit of text in Doomsday relating to your village, say, if you come from, I don't know, rural Devon, um, you'd have to go to an academic library and find these big facsimile volumes that cost a fortune and are not available in public libraries anywhere. It's it's become a very exclusive document, not just the original in Q, but the whole kind of mythos surrounding it. Um, and so it's hoped that part of what this project and some others like it that are going on, especially at the University of Hull at the moment, to digitise Great Doomsday, potentially one day, um, it's hoped that this will kind of bring a more egalitarian aspect to the study of what's been quite an exclusive document. Um, so the, the Conqueror's Commissioner's project uh, has digitized the manuscript, made it more accessible. It's going to very soon be able to be viewed on, uh, on the website alongside a Latin text and a translation of that text, um, and also technical descriptions of the physical properties of the manuscript carried out by various members of the project team. And so you can sort of just about see how this viewer will work and you'll be able to change the different panes so that you can, you can look at different things together in combination. Um, there's also more digitally advanced aspects of the website. Um, it's given rise to all sorts of interesting new ways of manipulating and presenting the information contained in the manuscript. So, for example, the manuscript was written by 25 scribes, which is a massive number for a medieval book. You almost never get that many. And our project web developer took our paleographer's work um, and wrote, worked out where each scribe writes and how they collaborate, um, and then presented it graphically. So this kind of barcode-like structure that you can see is actually an interactive graphical representation of where each of the scribes write and of how they work together. And I wasn't going to risk a live demo because they always go horribly wrong. But <laughs> if I did, you would be able to kind of, as you run your mouse across this barcode structure, it flashes up images of the points in the manuscript where that scribe writes. But it enables you to see very clearly the kind of patterns of collaboration in a way that's much harder to do with the, um, the previous work that had been done on the manuscript where it was just a list of folio numbers. Um, so that's one good example of, of new things that this project's been able to do. And, perfect, um, there are other projects that are currently ongoing um, which also use Doomsday and turn it into new digital resources. So there's something called the Pace Doomsday Project, which is the prosopography of Anglo-Saxon England. Um, and that's the work of Stephen Baxter, Chris Lewis, and Duncan Probert, who are 
not quite all based at King's anymore, but used to be. Um, and they're nearing completion with this, and they've essentially fed all of the information in Great Doomsday into a fully searchable database of individual people and their land holdings, so that you can finally see accurately mapped images of who held what where. Uh, and in a way, in fact, that of course, that William the Conqueror would never have been able to see and probably not even been able to visualize. Uh, so I work on bishops, so I'm using some Episcopal examples of this. Uh, so here we can see that the holdings of the pre-conquest Archbishop of Canterbury and Bishop of Winchester, who was a rather dodgy guy called Stegand, um, are actually vastly larger than the combined holdings of his two post-conquest successors as the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Winchester. So you can really see just from that one image why this guy was such a kind of political threat to the conqueror and why he would wanted to have got rid of him so quickly, which he then did. Um, it's quite a stark representation of that in a way that you don't necessarily capture from just sort of individual entries. Um, and one last example. Um, these are, I haven't put the names, but you can see from these images of the holdings of different post-conquest bishops that you have some who are very much focused in their individual areas, in their own diocese, local political interests, and those are the top two examples um, who are con holdings concentrated in one area. And then you have others who are clearly coming to the centres of power around London, Westminster, and Winchester much more frequently. They've got estates that span the country. They've got much more national political interests and you can see just from these maps that where people are traveling and what that might say about how they were interacting with each other. So all of these new digital ways of presenting very old information have allowed us to gain far greater insights into an already well-studied source. Uh, they've also managed to uh, make the study of that source somewhat less exclusive and kind of behind closed doors than it had been. However, they do offer us a warning, which is that if we're not careful about what we're going to do with the information that we collect, it can be awfully easy to end up in a situation where you have a lot of data and no real sense of how to use it. Thank you very much. <laughs>